Hey, welcome to Whatnot, the podcast. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of St. Paul and Jesus Death Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. I'm here with Pastor Andy Packer, Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, Collinsville, Australia. It was nice to be in your neck of the woods the last couple of weeks uh, down in Australia. Yeah, that was great. I wish visit. I could have wish I could have been there too. <laughs> your Australian accent <laughs> is really hidden, Pastor Packer. I, I try. It's you know. <laughs> Trying to hide it for these videos. You remember, I remember one time I was sitting around the campfire with a handful of Australians. This is back when I was 16 years old or whatever. And I was just listening to them tell stories, talk about nonsense. And uh, and I realized I, I enjoyed the Australian accent so much. And I, I, I all of a sudden I was like, ah, oh, it's because it's different. It sounds foreign and unique to me. And so I, so I told them, I said, I just realized that I must sound just as cool to you guys as you sound to me. Because my accent is different, and they two of these guys looked at me and they said, "Nah, mate, nah, <laughs> you sound ridiculous." So anyway, I was down in Australia, sounding ridiculous. It was really great. Uh, God be praised for the faithful down there. We, we got to keep praying for the Lutherans in Australia because they're in a tough spot now um, with uh, with what their church is going through. Especially the, the immediate question has to do with the ordaining of women. So the Lutheran Church in Australia and also the SELC, the Free Evangelical Lutheran Church in Germany, are both having serious questions about the ordination of women, which is strange. And these threaten to split up the church bodies to, for as far as the SELC's concerned, to break fellowship with Missouri Synod. There's a, there's a bunch of things happening. And, and that's always a symptom, right? It's always a symptom of the problem. So we got to keep praying for them. Well, since you brought that up, we'll go out of order because um, you have two follow up questions from your visit to Australia that, oh, that were sent in. Um, he says, after receiving the recent email newsletter in which you discuss the topic of women's ordination, which is being pushed by the Lutheran Church of Australia, I would like to say thanks for your message. As an Australian, the course being taken by the LCA has been frustrating. Um, he has some things in there basically saying he doesn't see women's ordination in scripture, but rather scripture's against it. But then he says, so far the Lord has helped me to find peace when I'm feeling frustrated by this issue. But what should I do when the Lutheran Church of Australia goes ahead with their heretical plans? Is it time to stop going to church? I'm not sure what a devout Lutheran should do. Any advice is appreciated. And of course, this isn't just Australia. As you said, there's other places too. So the question applies to a whole lot of people right now. So, so what should he do? It's unique that there's very, so the Lutheran church in Australia is the result of a union back in maybe the sixties. Uh, I've got the history of the Lutheran church of Australia in a book now that I need to study. But what that means is that there was two factions that were generally leaning different directions who were brought together under a thesis of agreement, which are good or sound. And, um, they're, they're biblical, which means that the Lutheran Church of Australia doesn't ordain women. It's against their teaching to ordain women. And yet they're past five, six conventions. The question of ordaining women has come up and the majority of people have voted for it. But the theses of agreement indicate that you have to have two thirds majority at least to change doctrine. And so it's failed. Uh, in all the last conventions. Now, it, it just fr from my very, very distant perspective, one of the problems is that 
those who teach contrary to the church, so the church official doctrine says that women can't be pastors, those who teach contrary to the church have had no consequences for continuing to teach and promote women's ordination. So even though the convention didn't change the doctrine, those who taught contrary to the doctrine still remained in the church. And in the last convention, what was presented was a plan to have, as they've said it, two practices, one doctrine, two practices. And so they've said, they, they made this move and they said, well, the ordination of women isn't a doctrine, it's a practice. It's a practical matter. And so we don't need two thirds majority to change the doctrine. We just need a majority to change the practice. And we can have two different practices with one church. Now, the, the problem is that this, again, from, from my angle, which is distant and very acute. And so everyone, if you in Australia who are watching, you're going to have to forgive all kinds of ignorance on my behalf that I, you know, just had a beautiful visit a couple of weeks ago, but there's no way to understand all the history and all the nuances and everything. But from, from what I see, it looks like there's very few congregations where the majority of people would be against women's ordination. And a big thing that's happened is that, and I think the argument happens like this, especially as the bureaucracy of the church ages, what happens is you start to have children and grandchildren who are leaving the church because the church is too fundamentalist or too, they just, they're kind of swept along with the culture. And, and you want your kids more than anything to come back to church. That's what every Christian wants is their kids to be in church. And so you start to say, well, is there something wrong with what the church is doing that's unnecessarily offending the, the children? And it seems like that's the way that the women, the pro-women's ordination argument is coming, is that, look, if we could concede here, then we would be less offensive to the, to the, to the children of the church who are being swept away by the culture. Now, it's just the problem is you, you can understand that sort of the heartbreak from which from the place that that comes. But it's just not. It it doesn't it's not the real problem. Uh, in fact, there's you, sometimes you see it like this is that there's a power imbalance in the church and that men are have more power than women. Now, I don't know who teaches us to teach that to speak in that way. It's not biblical Christian language. It's not how, but if we bring that problem to the church, you, what you realize is that women's ordination doesn't actually solve that problem. So that as far as I can see, the women's ordination, which is presented as a solution to all these various problems, is, is not actually addressing the real problem. It's just a way to sort of filter the energy generated from the problem into something that we could actually do. And it's hard for people to see who are having the conversation that it actually is going to make things worse because the ordination of women is always a symptom of, well, of two things, um, at least in the modern times, it's a symptom of um, degraded biblical authority, um, that the, the authority of the scriptures is not, is not holding strong, and also kind of a, a cultural infiltration, a desire that's crept into the conscience of the church to be less offensive to the world. And so you put those two things together and the result is, is women's ordination. But the problem is, well, what to do? Like if the Lutheran church of Australia and God forbid that they would go through with this because it'd be a church destroying thing. 
and 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 church bureaucracies always look. I I've been involved in church bureaucracies. You realize that it's run by three committees, right? So, um, obscure the problem committee, make sure the solution costs more committee, and then the super secret committee, which is make sure the prob make sure the solution makes the problem worse committee. That's the real brain trust of the thing, and and so this you know this shows all the indications of that of that bureaucratic committee to make sure the solution makes the problem worse. And so it, it, it will end up splitting families and churches and congregations to, to, you know, to go forward with this kind of nonsense of it's this, this delusion of two practices, one doctrine, it's just nonsense, but it's real tempting for a bureaucracy to, to not be able to, to see that it's for whatever reason, the, the, the bureaucratic mind, this looks wise bureaucratically and, and the bureaucratic mind can't see the, the emptiness of it. It's true also for Germany. Now what to, for the faithful Christians to do? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I know that President Harrison here in the Missouri Synod has sent a really nice note saying to the confessional Lutherans in Australia, uh, hey, we've got your back. Um, you never should not go to church. So you got to go to church somewhere, but it might be that you have to go to a church where you can't commune, uh, where you're, you're going to listen to the word. Even there, it's so tricky because you're hearing the word and you have to discern, is this true or not? But we always have to go to church. So for Christians that don't have a faithful Lutheran church around them, you got to go to a church somewhere and you're just going to the church that is the most faithful. I mean, sometimes it might be an Orthodox church or a Catholic church or a Reformed church or who knows. It's you're, you, you're the church that is the closest. To, you got to go there, but you can't participate in the supper there. You can't become a member there. Uh, you're just you're you're hanging around the edges like the God fearers in the synagogue. You're just you're you're there to listen and try to be edified in as much as, as you can. And you're reading the small catechism at home. And and you're raising up the flag and looking for a confessional Lutheran help. I could imagine a future where the Missouri Synod has to send missionaries to Australia and missionaries to Germany if the bureaucracies of these churches go through with this nonsense and 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 kind of wreck the church on the rocks of culture. And we got to go and try to scrape some, together the a kind of remnant and gather together a remnant. And I think the remnant will always be there. And in some ways it might be a blessing from God because like Paul says to the Corinthians, there has to be divisions among you so that those who are approved might be manifest so that there's always going to be this fight in the church. And maybe that's what the Lord is doing, is doing here, but, but we'll see. I mean, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of really solid Lutheran folks in Australia, but they're divided about what to do. What's the next step? Do we stick with the LCA and wait for the next convention? Do we try to start something on our own? Do we, what, you know, what do we do? And if the faithful start to leave, then it, you know, it kind of leaves the convention with, with not a lot of support, but how, you know, how long can you go along with this, with the propaganda that there can be, that you can be a church united when you, when, when you have two different, doctrines that are called practices it's, it's just a, a real mess so for those who, who are not involved you got to pray for those who are involved so the lca lutheran church of australia and the selk the selk free lutheran church in germany going through the same 
questions. We got to pray that the Holy Spirit would give wisdom to the folks that that have influence in those places. Do you think uh, there's enough confessional Lutherans in Australia that they could form their own break off and form their own synod? Because you had mentioned that you think the majority of churches that those in favor of this outweigh those <clears throat> against it. So is there any possibility, do you think of them doing that? Um, and it sounded like uh, the question you raised was, should they, should they leave now and start thinking about forming their own thing and banding together outside of the LCA or should they uh, stay and fight a little bit longer, see if they can't uh, make a difference and perhaps I guess either wait to be kicked out or or wait until the it's it's very clear that, that there's no turning back and that they have to leave. Um, is there enough of a group to, to do that kind of thing or are they so small now that there's not much hope of that? It's very that's very hard to tell. It seems to me, and again, this is a that there's a handful of congregations, maybe in Hamilton, maybe in Toowoomba, up in Queensland, that w the congregations themselves would be would would be like a confessional congregation, but in most places it's divided. The congregations are divided, so there uh, you have people that are in the congregation that are. Would, we would say, here, here's confessional Lutherans, they'd be against women's ordination, a strong doctrine, biblical authority. Then you have some that in each congregation that would be really leaning in a progressive direction. Um, and then some in the middle that are, that are, that don't know exactly how to think about it. And I was realizing one of the difficulties that they're facing in Australia is that they don't have the tradition. This is true also in Germany. This is true in most places in the world. They don't have the tradition of adult Sunday school class. And that might be seem like a small thing, but to me, it seems like a huge thing that that when we had this battle in the Missouri Synod over the authority of the scriptures, Seminex, the laity of the church came to convention and said, no, we need to hold on to the scriptures as the inspired, inerrant and infallible, the clear and sufficient and efficacious word of God. And the laity were 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 trained up in the theology. It seems like in a lot of places in the world that that emphasis on adult Bible study is is not like it is here in the United States. If I could if I could have a like a, a magic wand and change something in in the Lutheran Church throughout the world, this is what it would do: is I would immediately institute in every place the pastor teaching the adult. Sunday school class every Sunday after church before church it's better after that they would be a there would be an adult Bible class and so that the laity will be theologians because one of the dangers that we face is the idea that the pastor is the expert theologian and you get an expert theological class and that is that is not how the Lord's church was intended to be and it's and it really violates a number of Reformation principles I mean just it violates the fact that that Paul wrote scriptures to the churches to be heard and understood. And so, so every student, every Christian is a theologian and, um, and we cannot let the theological conversation just go to the, to the professional class. But it seems like in Australia that, that, and in Germany, that the, the laity that are well-informed are the young converts and they're not necessary. And remember, the convert is never invested in the institution. 
So there's a danger of the convert because they don't care. Like, you know, you and I are, we're converts to L- Lutheran church. We're con- our families. We're not, don't have history in Missouri Synod. And so in some ways we don't care for the institution. Like the Missouri Synod is helpful for us insofar as it preaches the gospel. And if it stops helping the teaching of the word and the preaching of the gospel, then fine, let's, you know, let it go. We don't have that investment in the institution as converts. The young families that are converts in the Lutheran Church of Australia, the same sort of, they don't have that investment in the institution. Like, what, what do we care about the LCA for? We, we should, you know, just do our own confessional Lutheran Church. There's old uh, confessional, faithful confessional pastors and teachers who do have an investment in the institution, who were part of the union, who were there to, to, to see this project go. And, and, they, and they want this thing to work out. So they have more of an institutional investment. And so they've got a different idea and way to think about it and way to approach it. Both of those groups need each other because those who are invested in the institutions are right. I, for example, I've had a change of heart. I've had to change my own mind down here with Concordia, Texas, because when Concordia, Texas, when the Board of Regents, you know, a year and a half ago said, hey, we're, this isn't yours anymore, it's ours now. And they accomplished this kind of horse theft. And I said, well, fine, good riddance. You weren't really Lutheran. It was an accidental act of integrity. You weren't really Lutheran to begin with. But all the people, the congregation who were here invested in the university and who, who made the point that we need specific institutions because we have specific vocations in the church that we have to train for, especially Lutheran school teachers. And, you know, we have DCEs, I suppose, and, and preparing guys to go to seminary, that we need specific institutions, that we have to invest in these things, and that it's just not that easy to get these things going and, and to get them moving, that it's better to keep what we, what we have. So there is both a, like a, a treasuring the institution and also being willing to let it go. That's so those, both of those sides need each other. But the answer is I do not know. It is not apparent to me that it would be easy for the confessional guys in the LCA to start their own church body. I think there's probably a few in most churches. There's probably a few families that would be willing to leave for the, for the confession, but it would not be the majority of each congregation. There'd be more pastors that leave than laity that leave, I think, by percentage. Um, and then, but then who knows if there's enough congregation, if there's enough people to be able to support a pastor, then you're really in trouble. Um, Aaron Wren talks about that, uh, and he's a kind of a cultural um, commentator, uh, runs, uh, I think it's still called the masculinist, his his blog, his site, but he talks, he had, he had some great things. He even went over the LCMS's history about this stuff that generally conservatives are too quick to abandon institutions um, and, and leave them in the hands of others. Whereas we forget one, as you were saying, how long it takes to, to build such things. And that once you see that ground, it's, it's almost impossible once you've handed over to ever get that back or to ever build up something that's similar like that fighting for things is usually worth it in the long run. Even if you end up losing, at least you can say we, you know, we went down swinging, we tried our best to hold on to this thing and we just couldn't do it rather than the conservatives tend to say, Oh, just, just let it go. It doesn't matter. It's just the institution. Mm-hmm. But um, like you were saying, people have invested in those things. Um, Cause your church used to be uh, the church of 
the school, right? Like it used right. to be like it used for the chapel and things like that. Um, so like the people there have invested lots of money and time to build that. And um, there may come a time with all institutions where you have to let them go. But uh, I do think I myself too, I think I've changed um, over the years on this, that it's staying to fight as long as you can is generally worth it. But, um, but with what's going on in Australia, I don't feel like I know enough of like all the, all the ins and outs of what's going on to advise people whether they need to stay and fight or, or split off and form their own thing right now. Um, but um, I do think what you're saying about adult Bible study is really important. It seems like even in our own circles, we tend to denigrate it a little bit. Like um, we want to elevate the divine service. And so sometimes in so doing, we talk about Bible study as if it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, if people don't come to that. It's not a big deal as long as they're in church. But like you said that, especially with biblical illiteracy being what it is like, where else are they going to, you know, be grounded in scripture if it's not an adult Bible study, like, there's just not enough time in a sermon um, to, to cover all kinds of things that you can get into detail in an adult Bible study and give them a firmer foundation. Um, and so rather than seeing them as like working against each other or putting them against each other, seeing them as complementary um, and as, because if you're an adult Bible study, you're going to understand the sermon better, right? I mean, if you're if you're grounded in the Word of God better, you're going to receive the Word better as you go to church week in and week out. Um, they're working with and for each other rather than against each other. But it does seem like we kind of, I don't know, almost downplay um, Bible study anymore. Whereas it seems like we need it more now than we ever have with how little people seem to know the Word of God. Because I doubt our congregations are... I mean, the percentages are probably a little better, but we probably have a lot of congregations where if you took a vote on women's ordination, where you could have quite a lot of laity who are saying, yeah, why not? You know, I mean, um, especially if you just look at the, the younger generations um, and ask them, a lot of them would probably say, sure, why, why not? We don't right. understand why, why we're opposed to this anyway. Um, right. That's right. Yeah, my dad says that his two ways of judging the health of a congregation are the men's group and the pastor's Sunday school class. And and so he'll go he'll, he'll ask about the men's group and he'll ask about the pastor. How's your pastor's Sunday school class? Do people go to it? Is it well attended? Is it exciting? Is I mean, is there a liveliness to it or is it a mm. and and that's the his that's how he gauges the health of a congregation. Now, I don't know if that's right or not, but there's I think there's something to it because um, that interest in the word of God, in being, in being a theologian, in being a student of the word of God is, is vitally important for the, for the Christian life. And we, we need good laity. And one of the things that I think we're suffering from in the Lutheran church, Missouri Synod is that anytime there was a man who showed some theological inclination, we sent him to the seminary so that, so that we have, we, 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 we don't have that big foundation of well-trained uh, Lutheran uh, laity and especially men. And we, and we need to, we need to really work on that and emphasize that as well. So, um, and I, I'm, I know it's not the case of your church. Uh, it's, it's certain it's not the case here at St. Paul. I mean, we, we, the adult Sunday school class is marvelous and people are just, but I like when I notice someone who they've never gone to Sunday school their whole life and they start to come to Sunday school class, that is like, in my mind, it's like baptisms, confirmations, 
conversions from not Sunday school to Sunday school. Those are like <laughs> my pastoral successes, you know, because because now you you st you start to have a theological life. It starts to the Bible and these questions start to capture your imagination. It's so it's so important. Yeah, one of the things I try to I try to do in in Bible studies, we're going through a book of the Bible. Is um, one of my goals is to teach people how to read the Bible. Yeah, right. Like like trying to see that it's not just the pastor that can see these things and understand these things, but like if you're paying attention, you can you can learn how to see Christ in the Old Testament. Like you can you can do this, and it'll bless your own Bible reading. So I always try to emphasize like here, here's, here's how to understand the text, but this, this should carry over into how you read the Bible during the week. Like you should be reading the Bible like this so that you get more out of it. Um, cause I, I want them to know the Bible and love the Bible on their own, not just, you know, on Sundays. Um, this is pastor appreciation month. Apparently. I don't know if you, if you know, but this is, uh, what people ask, well, how can I show appreciation for my pastor? So number one, which is always the most important is to pray for your pastor. Uh, to daily pray that the Lord would would teach him, protect him, guard him, and his family would bless him. That's number one. Number two, assuming you're going to church, which you ought to be going to church, number two is go to your pastor's Bible class and ask him questions. I think that's the one of the best ways you can bless your pastor to show. Because one of the burdens of the pastor, I don't know if you, I, I know, I do know you feel this, Pastor Packer. I, I feel it too that that the, one of the burdens that pastors are always feeling is that this thing, which is the most important for our, our whole lives is the word of God seems like a recreational activity for the, for everyone else. So like the thing, which is the most serious is for everyone else. The thing that you get to, if you have time, the, the study of the Lord's word. And so when you commit to going to Bible class, you're saying, no, no, this thing, this word from God, this text, this book, this is mine. I belong to it. And that is the thing that every pastor is, is praying for and working towards and longing for, too. So I think that's the best way for you to, to actually show your, to bless your pastor is to go to a Sunday school class. Yeah, I, sometimes you see those lists, and, and I think those are usually the top three, right? Pray, go to church, go to Bible study. And, um, uh, some of the other ones, like let your pastor help you, you know, like uh, oftentimes people come to us after things are really far gone. Um, like marriages, right. We've, I think we've talked about that on here before people come for marriage help after they've kind of already decided that they're, they're done or whatever. Um, so yeah, do the, attend church and Bible study, pray and show up, um, come, come to them with, with your needs before they get out of hand so that we can try to help you before it feels uh, too far gone with various things like that's we want to apply God's word to those situations too not just generally to the whole congregation but specifically to their needs when, when they arise in their lives so that's um, what we're here for what are you writing I'm writing down <laughs> what we're talking about so I can remember to put it on the description of the video <laughs> I thought you were going to make one of your little cards to, to, to show up. No, no, I, I next I'll do that next. So good. I think we got to that. In fact, I think we got to that question so much that we wandered way off into the bush uh, with it. Into, into the, the outback. Out out yeah. 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 Good. Well, and I think we covered uh, the other, someone else had a question about uh, from Australia about there's no confessional Lutheran church near them. They've been going to a Presbyterian church and the pastor starting to use the language 
almost Lutheran sounding language about the Lord's Supper and wanted to know if they could commune. But I, I think you've covered that as well, um, that that there's still still a difference there. Right. Um, so even if the pastor starting to sound very Lutheran on the Lord's Supper, um, by virtue of the fact that they still hold to their Presbyterian confessions, they're still saying that there's disagreement among us. Not that not that their pastor is isn't even a great pastor and isn't even a, a, a good guy or that um it's it's a could be a quite a quite a good church, but we're just acknowledging that there's still differences in doctrine among us, and that does affect whether or not we commune with them. There's a big uh there's an old controversy in the Reformation because the Reformed can talk about the Lord's Supper and sound just like Lutherans. Uh, they use the, the the Reformed officially have the the real presence. They'll speak about eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. the The problem is they make it a matter of faith. So here here's the this is the old crypto Calvinist controversy, which I think is great. I think this is like you, we should write a detective novel about the secret. Calvinists and trying to discern if if they're Calvinists or not, and so the Lutherans had to figure out how do we how do we slice this cheese, uh, how do we make this distinction between the the Lutherans and the Reformed on the supper, and so they came up with a key question. So this would be a good question to ask the pastor. Now, even if he falls, if it turns out that you have a like accidentally Lutheran pastor serving a Presbyterian church, you still shouldn't commune there because the key thing is the church's confession. And if the church is confessing the Westminster standards or whatever, then they're rejecting our Lutheran doctrine. But here's the interesting question that gets down to it. When an unbeliever comes to the to the Lord's Supper, what do they get? That's the manducatio indignorum, the, the, the mandicating of the indignant or the chewing of the unbeliever. What does the unbeliever get when they come to the Lord's Supper? And the Reformed, because they believe that the Lord's Supper is a communing with the divine nature of Christ by ascent into heaven through faith. They say the unbeliever gets only bread and wine. The Lutheran, on the other hand, says that the unbeliever gets the true body and the true blood, but they do not receive the benefit, the forgiveness of sins, because that's received only by faith. So the Reformed say that Jesus is received by faith. The Lutherans say that Jesus is received by eating and drinking, and the promise is received by faith. And so that lets you see the distinction. So it'd be an interesting question. I'd love to hear how that conversation goes. If you say to the pastor, I, I'd like to ask you about the manducatio indignorum and the eating of the unbeliever and see how they answer. But still, it, it, I don't think it would change anything. We the, Remember that to go to the church is to make a public profession. It's to amplify the teaching of that place. It's to say that this, it's it's to... It's to put your signature. You know how the people go, like the Greenpeace guys are always wants you to sign some sort of thing. And you're like, well, what does it say? You know, when you go to the, when you go to, to the supper, you're putting your name on the teaching of that altar. And if you can't put your name on the Westminster standards, on the, you know, on the um, Westminster confession, on the Heidelberg catechism, on whatever it is that the, on the book of order that the Presbyterian church has there, if you can't sign that, then you can't go to communion. That's the that's your key uh, qu question there. But it's good, like we said before, you got to go to church somewhere. So you're just you're going to the place that's closest to the teaching of the catechism, uh, and doing your best with it. 
Well, our other question was a follow-up to um, what we talked about last time. Did you want to do that or save that for next time? Do yeah, let's keep this do it. Fo- I don't know if we want to keep this focused on uh, the Australian Outback. Um, so this is a follow-up question to our September video on the topic. If it happens, then it's God's will. Why does God allow suffering? Based on the end of Romans 8, the solid declaration of the formula of Concord, Article 11, says God in his purpose has ordained before the time of the world by what crosses and sufferings he would conform every one of his elect image of his son. Seems to me that the Lutherans do indeed have an answer to the question right there. It seems to me to say God allowed the suffering because he knew that's what it was going to take to bring you to faith in him over and against your unbelieving and sinful corruption. That individual episode of suffering is not the entirety of the act either. and You're not going to be able to see the whole of it this side of heaven. But rest assured, you are suffering because God is saving someone, and it's probably you. Having labored under this understanding myself, it becomes difficult for me in my suffering to think of God as anything other than the hard man of Matthew 25, or some kind of divine megalomaniac who says, nope, you didn't look to me enough, in order for us to cry uncle or better Abba Father. If the answer points to our sinful corruption and what it takes to conform us to the image of Christ, that should drive us to plead God's mercy. Yes, am I missing something here? Thanks. So, uh, I th- if I'm understanding the question, uh, and and I think it, it seems like it's just like, hey, a little more reflection on God's use of suffering and God's character. I, may, maybe two two things, and then and then I'll ta- see what what you think too. While the formula identifies suffering as working in us uh, salvation, I, I think that. This that is certainly true, but it's not the whole truth in the sense that suffering is an occasion for us to hope, and it's an occasion for us to pray, and it's an, an occasion for us to 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 trust in God. It's also an occasion for love. In other words, the the Lord through suffering also makes occasions for other people to love us and for us to love other people, and so the Lord is is working. Um, he's destroying the flesh. He's fighting against the devil. And so the Lord could be up to a lot of different things through suffering. So we, the danger is we limit it and say, well, suffering increases faith. Okay, well, but sometimes it, it, the Lord has a different objective. Sometimes it's love. Sometimes it's hope. Sometimes it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different things that the Lord is after. I, I think the other thing to think about, Carrie and I were talking about this last night, is that so there's a danger in approaching this question theologically rather than historically and and the example I was I was trying to think of is if you so if you imagine you meet someone for the first time and you say well hey tell me about yourself and they start giving you their attributes you know they're like well I'm I'm 5'10 and I'm 105 pounds and I'm 46 years old and I'm, you know, and, and you're like, um, maybe that's not what I was asking. You know, I was asking more about, well, what I, I guess I was asking about is your story. You know, tell me your story. What do you do? What, where are you from? Et cetera. And it, the same thing I think is true with God in the sense that like God does not introduce himself to us by giving us his attributes. I mean, they show up and we learn about them, that he's all powerful and all knowing and in every place and unchanging and so forth. But 
he introduces himself by telling us the story, and the story is all the things that he suffers to save us. And that that's where we get the picture of who God is. Is he he is the one who sent his son. He is the son who comes to to save sinners and endure all things for our sake. That's he is crucified. This is who God is. And and when we know God in Christ, then the suffering of this life is bearable in some ways. We talked about it in Australia, we talked about it this way. We compared the death of Stephen with the death of Jesus and the prayers that they prayed. And because Stephen prays two prayers and they match up with two of the three prayers that Jesus prayed on the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. Stephen said, Jesus, don't hold the sin against them. Jesus prayed Psalm 31, into your hands I commend myself. Stephen prayed the same thing, into your hands I commend myself. The, the really interesting thing is the thing that Stephen didn't pray, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hmm. Because Jesus, in his suffering, endures this wrathful forsakenness of God, the, the, the wrath of God, which is the sharp edge of his holiness. Jesus endures that so that we can know that God is not forsaking us, that he's with us in the midst of disaster, that he, he's not angry with us, and that actually transforms our suffering. So that the death of Jesus is different than the... the, the, the suffering of Jesus is different than the suffering of Stephen. Because he does not cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, he sees Jesus standing at the Father's right hand waiting for him. And so that that the work that Jesus has done on the cross teaches us of God who he is for us, and that transforms everything about our own suffering. I don't know if that's, you think that's getting at what the question is asking? Yeah, I think the way I think about it is this too. Like the question we were dealing with was, was someone um, who had been sexually abused, right? And what role is God having that? And, and I think there's an order to these things pastorally. Like if someone comes to me who's suffering, I, I don't think, even if it's true, like just because something's true doesn't mean it's the most helpful thing to hear at that moment, right? So if someone comes to me and they're suffering, and the first thing I say is, um, well, it's great because God's using this to conform you to the image of his son. Like it's true. Um, and, and God is using it in that way, but that may not be what they need to hear at that moment. Like they first probably need to be driven as you were talking about to, to Christ and his suffering. Cause it's only then that they can begin to see their suffering rightly. Like, so until you take that first step. And I think the last time we discussed this, I think that was more of our focus rather than trying to understand the whys um, behind it all. Cause even if we say God ordained this, um, um, or as the formula says, ordained before the time of the world by what crosses and sufferings he would conform every one of his elect image of his son. Um, it doesn't answer the question of beyond that of like, okay, but why this horrific thing for me? Right. Why is, why did I have to undergo this to become conformed to his image? Like there's still questions that come up. Um, so I, I think unless you're driven to Christ first, then, he, then even that can become, I, I think as he says at the end here, um, it can be easy then to see God as kind of like this, this megalomaniac um, 
You didn't look to me enough. You didn't suffer yet enough to be conformed to the image of my son. Um, so I think you have to start what you were talking about, that we have to be driven to Christ first. It's kind of like um, what you were saying reminded me of the, but both this last Sunday and two Sundays ago, preaching on these various parables of the vineyard. And, and a question I've asked with both is, who does this, right? Who Who would send his son into a vineyard after all the servants had been beaten and killed? Like, who would do that? You would send the army to wipe them out, like the Pharisees and chief priests said should be done. You wouldn't send your son, because that would be that would be ridiculous. Um, and yet, that's exactly what God does, right? He sends his son to suffer and die in our place. Um, he knew that's what was going to happen, and he did it anyway. And so being driven there first, and then I think as time goes on, you can begin to understand and see, hey, God did use this suffering for my good. But I, I don't... I just rarely think that's the place to start with someone who's like weeping and wailing and and upset in their suffering. Um, that's not where I want to go first. I think we get them there, but I don't think we get them there right away by by jumping to that and patting them on the back and saying, it's all fine because this is being used for your good. Right. Um, they'll oh, get yeah. there. If they're looking to Jesus, I think they get there. Um, and so we obviously agree with what the formula says there. But the question is, when does that come into discussion? And I think it's going to vary from person to person, depending on how they're they're bearing up under their suffering and where they're yeah. at in their suffering, and what kind of questions are being asked. Um, so while it's a true answer, um, the danger is applying it pastorally to everything without getting them to Jesus first, um, and to gain to rely on Him and His suffering first and foremost. So that's. That's how I, I tend to think about this. There's this weird, you know, just listening to, you know, talking about like when we're, when we're suffering, we're crying out, no. And then we, and then we ask why. And we think, we, it must be that we think that if we knew the answer why, it would take away some of the pain, Right. Like if I could understand why I'm going through this, if I could make sense of it, if I could connect the dots, if I could see the purpose, then the pain would somehow be less. But it's it's just it's well it's probably not true. Like knowing why probably is not going to make it any better. But we're just we're like we're grasping for that why. It's like I picture it like the you know we're in this room of suffering and there's a door it says why but it's locked but we're with our fingernails we're scraping clawing trying to get through that door it's not open and it's not there's probably nothing good on the other side of it anyways it's like it probably doesn't help in fact it might make it worse so we we have to in some ways turn away from the why question to the who who question that's what jesus does he says but peter does this six times peter talks about suffering in his first epistle and in the second, third, fourth, and fifth times, he basically said, Christ also suffered. So he he just sort of gently, I, I don't know how if you could imagine, he like he gently takes our chin and just points it towards the cross. Just like, okay, just I know this is hard. Just so just glimpse up here and see your savior also suffering for you with you 
and and he does that just over and over quite very you know with gently gently and that's probably the 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 work of the spirit and hopefully the pastor in the midst of suffering is just also Jesus suffered and and we start to receive comfort not from the answer why but from the promise that Christ also suffered and and in his suffering our own suffering um, has its healing and its meaning and purpose and also its giftedness you know it's it it, it it's because his and 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 back to this prayer of Stephen it's because his suffering takes away the my, it takes away the why my god my god why have you forsaken me so that we don't we don't have to ask that why because he can't forsake us he's with us uh, and if our eyes are looking to jesus it's it's then that it's actually going to be used for our good yeah. i mean until you get to that point it's you know it's it's not going to be uh, ever for your good if if it's not seen through the lens of jesus and his suffering and your eyes fixed on him like it, it just it can't be because it's going to drive you, like you said, down those those rabbit trails and to that wide door, um, and it's just going to lead to frustration. If that's where you start. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't it doesn't take away the pain, but it's not. So, you know, and we want this pain to end, and we pray for the pain to end. That's good, but that's not the the, the looking to Jesus doesn't make things feel better. But it starts to sanctify that that suffering in some ways. So, ah, good. That's a good question. Hopefully, that gets after. That was a good question. Who was the question from? Did it say? Or is it secret? Yeah, that one was from. Um, no, he said we use however we want. That was Scott Gherkin, who's. Uh, oh yeah. Um, St. Paul Brookfields. He's, great, great question. Uh, great faith, reference. Faithful guy there. Great reference, Scott, to the to the formula too. That's really helpful. So. Very good. All right. Well, hey, everyone, thanks for the questions today. There's, you know, thanks for the light, easy topics. <laughs> thanks for tuning into the show. What do we, should we advertise the, did you, have you, have I said, I haven't even sent you a copy of this, have I? No. Packer. Oh boy. The Lord's Prayer with the QR code, which shows a video of me teaching through the text. So um, you can find that. I'll put the link in the description. I'll send one to you. I don't know what the shipping is like to get something down to Australia there. But, uh, it takes weeks. But I'll send that to you. And um, uh, I think that's uh, up, uh, upcoming events are on the website, wolfmuller.co slash events. And if you're not subscribed to the Wednesday Whatnot, that's a great uh, place to keep in the loop, uh, wolfmuller.co slash Wednesday. Uh, anything you got coming up? Not that I can think of. Well, thanks again for uh, being with us. Thanks, Pastor Packer, for uh, this. It's really great. And God's peace be with you.